began last Sunday, the beginning of a three-part series called Prove It, answering some very important questions, uh, especially in our post-Christian American culture. These questions are, you know, does God exist? Is Christianity anti-science? You know, is the Bible really the word of God? And uh, we, we see this everywhere. It's, we, have all, we have three categories. We have skeptics, and we have seekers, and we have believers. We have them in our church today. We have them watching online. You have them at your place of work, your place of school, uh, in, in many families. And uh, I believe this series will, could be helpful for anybody in any of those categories. So last week we talked about does God exist and laid out some proofs of God. I had like nine of them ready, uh, but I could only teach three of them uh, just for time, time's sake. So they're online. Uh, that message is online if you want to watch that. Uh, today we're going to talk about is Christianity anti-science. To many people today, they believe that science and Christianity are not compatible. Uh, the, the, they're you know, in conflict with one another. This is communicated in, in high schools and colleges on social media. I see it everywhere on social media. If someone mentions, you know, God or mentions Christianity or whatever, uh, you know, the science issue comes up and it comes up with a lot of heat. In fact, this question about Christianity and science, studies show that it's one of the main reasons why 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up coming to Sunday school, grew up going to youth group and, and summer camp and all that, they walk away from their faith, they walk away from Christianity because of this issue of science and Christianity. And, and to summarize, the re, their reason is to, they say, you know what, I'm going to choose fact over faith. And I'm going to hold on to facts and ignore and push aside and walk away from faith. So it's one of the reasons why I'm having this part in this series. And I believe that the notion that Christianity is anti-science is, is a classic straw man argument. A classic straw man argument, meaning it's an intentional misrepresentation of a position and they go after that instead of having, uh, you know, kind of a real argument. It's harder to defeat a real argument. Straw men are very easy to knock over. So I say that just as, as a premise. That, and also, in our culture today, more than any time in my lifetime, there is a belief that science is all-powerful and knowing and right almost all the time. When in fact, over the course of history, that is inaccurate. That is not an accurate statement. There have been plenty of mistakes, plenty of confusion, plenty of incredible damage done when science has been completely wrong, completely out of bounds, completely inaccurate. And, and so just a couple of examples here. I'm not being political about this first one. So no emails, please, all right? We all lived through, most of us understood, that age understood what was going on and what was happening during COVID. And there were lines drawn, there were groups formed of I follow the science, and on the other side, people were going, I am following the science. 
but there was confusion, there was disunity, there was division because the science was presented as, you know, if, if you don't wear a mask, then you are harming people. In fact, you, you could be killing people. And then over here, wait a second, but there are also scientific studies that say these masks don't work with this virus. And then the whole vaccine, now it just amped up on steroids. You know, follow the science, take the vaccine. I am following the science, I'm not taking the vaccine. Um, and then natural immunity, to my surprise and chagrin, was just kind of pushed aside, let's not really go there. And that part of the science, we, you know, many people didn't want to talk about. In fact, this week it came out that under oath, um, Fauci said that the whole six-foot social distancing, that's all in our vernacular now, six-foot social distancing, he goes, was not science. It just kind of popped up. And we, we went with it. So, anyways, I'm, again, this, I'm not trying to be political about this. I'm saying the confusion and the angst and the debate it just recently was elevated about is this science accurate, is it not accurate at all? Um, going way back, um, there are a bunch of people that believe for quite a while, actually some people still today believe that the earth is flat, that the earth is flat. Um, Bloodletting was a scientific method for a long time. They actually thought that if someone was sick, they had an illness, they had a disease, that to get rid of that disease, you needed to let blood out and drain blood out. And our first president, George Washington, the source of his death was bloodletting. Now scientists are saying, based upon his symptoms, he either had strep throat or pneumonia. Okay, but at the time, this was a widely held scientific method to help cure illnesses and disease. Then for a long time, many people believed, many scientists believed that our universe was a one galaxy universe. And that's, this is what it is, um, that and all that there is. And then in 1924, someone by the name of Edwin Hubble came on the scene and, uh, you know, Hubble telescope and all, all of those research and stuff. And it's just keep continuing to come. They say now that, no, it's not a one you know, a one galaxy universe. They say now it's between 200 million galaxies to 2 trillion galaxies. They're, they're kind of covering their bet. That's a lot of galaxies. In fact, more information continues to come back of pictures of what's way, way, way out there. And it is continuing to grow and minds are being blown. Okay, we can go, okay, flat earth, yeah, no big deal. No one's hurt. Um, that's kind of weird, but that's what people, some people thought. But the next two, the last two that I have, have caused major damage. The scientific position of eugenics or eugenics was deadly. And it wasn't just the Nazis trying to manipulate a race, a higher, you know, more sophisticated race. Oh, it was, eugenics was in Germany, it was in Canada, it was in America. That is, that is this was, this was incredibly painful and wrong. 
And then there's a number of them racist theories using science to reinforce racial discrimination. Doing all these tests to say it's science that there are behavioral traits attributed to certain ethnicities. How offensive today that feels. That because you are a certain race, certain ethnicity, that's why you behave the way you do. And God would say, no, it's because the heart is wicked and deceitful. Go ahead and turn to Proverbs 18, if you would. Uh, there's more verses like this that I could kind of launch, kind of a foundational premise that um, talks up about this. I'm trying to, I'll give my best arguments this morning of why Christianity is not anti-science at all. Uh, for, if you're taking notes, here's the central point. I believe this, science and faith can coexist and complement each other. In fact, the Bible is filled with scientific foreknowledge and accuracy thousands of years before discovery. That Christianity and science can coexist, has coexisted, can complement, is complementing each other. In fact, the Bible is filled with many scientific foreknowledge. They're way ahead of the game and incredibly accurate before discovery took place. I'll give you some examples for this today. I don't know if you know this, but throughout history, the kind of like the, the legendary founding fathers of science, many of them were Christians. Just a few names. Maybe you've heard a few, a few of these names. Newton, Pascal, Pasteur, Pasteur, sorry, Galileo, and on and on and I can go. See, the Bible encourages us to pursue knowledge and wisdom, to investigate to test, to examine. In Proverbs um, 18, verse 15, there's a number of verses like this, but this one gets right to it. It says, the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge. For the ears of the wise seek it out, seek out knowledge. God has created us to have inquisitive minds, wondering how does that happen? Why does that happen? What about this? What about that? And to pursue it, to seek knowledge and, and discernment and understanding, God's all for that. I believe God put that in the DNA of his creation. So I'm gonna give you some examples of foreknowledge and accuracy that have been in scripture, and we're talking thousands and thousands of years before the discovery was made. Uh, the first one is the second law of thermodynamics. All right, everything, as you get older, especially after, after the age of 30, understanding everything does start deteriorating. Um, it says in Psalms, in the beginning, you, God, you laid out the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They, the work of your hands, will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Romans chapter 8. I think it's Romans chapter 8. Yes. 
the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to what? Decay. Everything winds down. You know, the older you get, you see little kids and all the energy that they have. And you're like, oh, look at that energy. Then it's exhausting looking at all that energy and hearing all that energy. And you remember, boy, oh, to be young again. And as you get older, you're like, yep, my body's wearing out. The earth is wearing out. The universe, and that's why stars die. Second law of thermodynamics. It's always been in God's word. Now let's talk about the earth, just the whole idea of the earth out in space. The psalmist writes in, in Psalm 104, He, God, made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. It's like on a clock. It happens every time. Now we have apps on our phone that tells us when the sun's going down, when it will rise. And it, it changes throughout the, throughout the year. We get that. But the next year, guess what? It happens exactly the same. It's like it's on a schedule. And did you know how important the moon is to planet Earth? We remove the moon, we're done. But the moon is part of the tilting of our axis, and because of the moon throughout the year, many parts of the world, not in Southern California, but many parts in the earth, there are things called seasons, right? The season that we're in right now in Kitsap County, I'm done with, all right? I'm done with, bring on spring and summer. All right, boo, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Mike, get right with God. All right, um, no. How many of you grew up in a part of the, the world that you had four seasons? I mean, it was like, all right, and you, oh, the, the leaves are turning colors. Then everything's dead. And then here comes new life again, and then here comes summer, and then it goes back to the moon. It was in Scripture, in Scripture. In the book of Job, the very first book written in the Bible, in, in Job, it says this. Uh, maybe I messed up. No, I'm sorry. Go back to Proverbs 8. You were correct. Um, uh, it says that he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. When he, God, established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains, plural, of the deep. We're told in, in Proverbs here, thousands and thousands of years before the whole idea of oceanology was even thought of, that in the, the ocean, there's fountains, there's springs, there's, the other passages say there's rivers in the ocean, there's mountains, there's valleys in the ocean. You can do your own search. I mean, they just found recently in 2019 off the coast of Mexico, there was this underground fountain spring. They found them in the bottom of the Black Sea. They found them a number of places under the ocean. God's word stated that. Now in, in Job, it says, He, God, spread out the northern skies 
over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Isaiah was told to write by God. You understand that? That this was in God's word thousands and thousands of thousands of years before man entered space and went to the moon, turned around and took photos of the earth suspended on nothing and that it was not a flat earth. It was a globe. It's always been in God's word. Then it comes to just our health and, and issues of our health. With, uh, with, with Abraham, God told Abraham something for his, his people. He said, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight years old must be circumcised. Will not have any pictures at all. And this is very uncomfortable for the males in the room. But God was telling Abraham, he was an older man who had to go under the knife. How awkward and painful that would have been. He says, from now on, every, your generation, every little boy, at eight days old, needs to be circumcised. You see, God was way ahead of science, way ahead of the medical world, and they found out later that, in fact, for all boys, if this happens, that helps eliminate a lot of disease and infections. But at eight days old is the, the best day. Real uh, Science says this, that on the third day, uh, there's a vitamin K, there's a thing called prothrombin, all right? Some, uh, I think it was some protein, that on the third day, it reaches about 30% of effectiveness. But on day eight, it spikes to 110 effectiveness. And why is it there? Is to allow blood to clot. That's the perfect day for a surgery on an infant. Now today, if they need to go into any surgery uh, on an infant, they, they then they have to increase the prothrombin and the vitamin K. But on day eight, 110%. God knew that. God knew it was healthy for uh, little, little, little boy's surgery. And then in Leviticus, it says this, for the life of a creature is in the blood. The life is in the blood. That's why you don't let the blood out um, because of disease. No, the life is found in the blood. And we now know with blood, now transfusions, how important they are. It's always in scripture, how key blood was. Now, in 1846, um, in Vienna, Austria, there was a head of a hospital by the name of uh, Ignaz um, Semmelweis. All right, I probably butchered that name. He was in charge of the hospital, and the primary uh, role of that hospital uh, played was uh, having pregnant women deliver babies. The death rate in 1846 in his hospital, and really hospitals all over, all over Europe, the death rate for, uh, for mothers coming in to give birth to a child was at 18%. 18%. And, and then Dr. Um, Semmelweis went on sabbatical, and he had a 
friend of his, a doctor friend of his, come take his place. Uh, that doctor was uh, uh, Kaletska, Dr. Kaletska. And so Dr. Kaletska comes in while his friend's on sabbatical, and he does what his, his doctor friend does. And he was gathered around some, um, some help, some students, and they were doing an autopsy, what they, they did all the time. They're still trying to figure out why, why are these uh, moms dying. And during the autopsy, something happened. He was bumped, and Dr. Kleska got a, a very, very small cut. He went over to the basin, washed it with water, and took a towel and dried it off and went about his day. Within two weeks, he died. The same symptoms that he had, it was the same symptoms other moms, pregnant mothers had, and they died. And they gave it a term with all these pregnant women called labor fever. It was like they went into labor, they, all of a sudden they got a fever, and then they died. Well, Dr. Kleska had the same exact symptoms, and they now couldn't call it labor fever. Dr. Uh, Semmelweis comes home from sabbatical, hears the story, and he, was, and he did a deeper investigation. And what they would do then was in the mornings, the teams would go down and do autopsies. They, would, they didn't have gloves. They were just doing what they were doing. Then they went and they all would wash wa or rinse their hands in just water the same basin, they would reach for the same towel and dry off their hands, and then they would go up and would examine pregnant women. He said, we got to change something. There's something here. So he said, new policy, new hospital policy. If you're doing an autopsy, everybody's going to wash in their own basin of water, and we're going to add chlorine to it, and you're going to dry off your hands with your own clean towel, and he commanded all the nurses that if there was a death and they removed the body, that that bed sheets, this is crazy to us now, but then it was normal, that the, all the sheets must be washed. They didn't even wash the sheets. The death rate of moms went from 18% down to 1% or 3%, 1 to 3%, immediately. He spent the rest of his career writing hospitals around the globe saying you need to make these changes. There's something going on. So what happened 3,500 years prior? 3,500 years prior. It was that in God's word, God gave us a formula for what now happens in lye soap lye soap. It's the same ingredients. Let me, I'm just going to read this. It'll be below me. In Numbers chapter 19, God knows his people are going to go, you know, that they leave in, leaving Egypt, going to the promised land. People are going to die along the way. God gave clear instructions what to do with a body who has died. Verse 6, it says this. The priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet wool, and throw them into the burning heifer. And after that, the priest must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. He may then come into camp, but he will be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean until evening. Meaning no one could touch him. No one could get around him. For hours later, 
Verse 8, the man who burns it must also wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he too will be unclean till evening. The man who, who is too clean shall gather up the ashes, ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside of camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community to use in the water of cleansing. It is for the purification from sin. The man who gathers up the ashes of the heifer must also wash his clothes, and he too will be unclean until evening. This will be a lasting ordinance, both for the Israelites and for the foreigners residing among them. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. The formula given here is very similar to, uh, to lye soap. They would take ashes from a hardwood, separate them, let them dry, and then they would take the ashes and mix them with water the hyssop and the wool was so that when you did it, it caused a little bit of an irritation. So you would do this to get rid of it, and then you would be clean. In dye soap, they take ashes from hardwood, soak it in water for several days. Ashes dry out, mixed with water, and it's part of the cleansing, purifying soap that we all take for granted today. But in 1846, tens of thousands of women could, could have been saved. 3,500 years ago, God gave instruction of what to do when you come in contact with dead bodies. See, science and faith can coexist, has coexisted, can complement each other. In fact, the Bible's filled with many scientific for knowledge and accuracy, thousands of years before discovery. Now, I'm going to wrap this thing up by talking what science is unable to do. Many believe that with the advancing technology and all the research, that science has the questions to everything, or most everything. And why do people believe that? That's why they say, okay, I'm going to choose fact over faith because this is something i can grab onto and faith uh you know i just i'm not i don't believe that anymore what happens with many people is they confuse and mix imperial science and forensic science those are two different science categories imperial empirical evidence or science is repeated events you record repeated events, uh, you observe, you take notes, you test things, and empirical science is how we get new medicine, iPhones, and Teslas. Okay, that, that, that's that science. You, you, gotta, you gotta understand, you gotta gain knowledge, you gotta do research, you gotta observe, you gotta write things down, do different testing. That's empirical science. For, forensic science or historical science is you're talking about non-repeatable events. They don't repeat. That's why it comes to the origin of the universe 
the origin of life, science hits a brick wall. Why? Because it's, it, it, it happened once. Talking about last week, there, there is a beginning of the universe. It's hard to test it. So we are left with questions. So I'm going to finish this, this morning by giving four things science cannot explain. It's not a knock on it. It's just, just a fact. Here's the first one. Science cannot explain the laws of logic and reason. Guess what is necessary in science? Logic and reason. But they can't explain how it has come to be. How it has come to be. Can't explain it. But it's necessary. They also cannot explain objective moral law and value judgments. Talked more about that last week. We have them. We intuitively know that things, certain things are wrong, certain things have value, certain things, things have less of a value. But science is descriptive, not prescriptive. Science can tell you what happened, but they can't tell you what ought to happen when you step into the moral realm. Science can only go so far. In fact, I'll give you a paraphrase of Albert Einstein, very close to uh, my IQ, um, Einstein. Not true. He said this, paraphrase, you can find the moral basis for science, but you cannot find the scientific basis for morals. You hit a wall. It's beyond natural science. It's, it's beyond empirical science. The third thing that science will never be able to explain is purpose and meaning. Every human being un needs to understand that we have purpose and life has meaning. When we don't have purpose and meaning, people don't want to live. Science cannot explain. Why? Because purpose and meaning comes outside the realm of science. Outside the realm of science. Science can tell us who we are, male or female, at least it used to. Can tell us who we are, but not why we are here. And then the fourth thing that science will never be able to explain is, that the, is the origin of the laws of nature. The laws of nature. The very laws that science has to have in order to pursue knowledge, to test, to gather information. The origin of the laws of nature. Where did these laws come from? Science doesn't have an ex explanation. Why are they here? Why don't they change? This is beyond science. You see, science is an expert in the natural world. What we can see, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can test. All of these very important aspects of human life are not in the natural world. It's beyond nature. It is supernatural. So there's a reason why many, not all, but a very high percentage, surveys are saying, of 
science professors and scientists who are just in the natural law kind of universe on, on planet Earth, that they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe, most of them do not believe there is a God. But so much of life's real questions that really give us purpose and meaning and understanding is beyond the natural world. Now you're entering into the supernatural world, which the Bible provides direction and answer. I just scratched the surface today of examples of scientific foreknowledge that has been in scripture for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before any of the science that we have today was even thought of. It's because I believe that a intelligent designer created everything we experienced. And like I said last week, and he's, he's a God who wants to be found. He wants us to know him and know about him. But because humans are made in the image of God, we are inquisical. We are wonders. We wonder how this happened, why this happened. God has put in us a desire to find answers. Science and faith can and has existed and complement each other. And the Bible gives some examples of how God was way before any science and any scientist, scientist in the world. Next, next week, message is already done. I'm excited about this. Yeah, but how do we know this is really God's word? I'm going to give you some supernatural qualities of why I believe it is God's word. Hopefully today I gave you some answers to maybe some of the questions you have been wrestling with. Would you pray with me? God, you are an amazing God, intelligent designer. You give meaning and purpose to our lives. You have given every single human being value because you say in your word that, that we were made in your image. Incredible value. Lord, I pray that the questions, the real honest questions that people are wrestling with today, I pray that in this series that they have some answers to ponder, to investigate further of why there is a God who exists and then how you are not in conflict with science. We pray that you would help those who need help and encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.